Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to my show. I am your host, CC Wong, and you're listening to my interview podcast, where I chat with people from all walks of life to hear their stories and to share insights we can all learn from. On today's episode, I have with me a fellow journalist and author. He is Ethan Lowe, and he has two new books out during the pandemic, both fascinating reads. Ethan is the type of journalist I read about and think he's why there'll always be an interest in good journalism. His passion lies in investigative and long-form journalism, and he is an exceptional writer and has worked in top newsrooms in Canada before becoming an author. Ethan's book, Once a Bitcoin Miner, has been called a must-read by the Times, and his other book, Field Notes from a Pandemic, has been named one of CBC's best Canadian nonfiction for 2020. Now we actually went to journalism school together, but in recent years, Ethan's career has taken off in an unexpected and spectacular way, which all began when he decided to invest in Bitcoin back in 2013. I won't go into this any further, but let's hear it straight from the man himself. Hello and welcome, Ethan. Cici, thank you for having me. It's great to talk to you again, and thank you for the kind words. Welcome. Well, you deserve it, I think. <laughs> so, you know, before we get into your two books, I kind of want our listeners to first have a better sense of who you are. You're turning twenty nine this year, is that correct? Uh, I'm turning thirty one. Oh, actually, Third- I, I already turned thirty one. I'm uh, this year. I'm going to turn thirty two. Really. Oh my goodness! I've always pegged you as you know a little bit younger than me. <laughs> That's a surprise. Well, you make me feel a little bit better about myself for not having written two books by this point. <laughs> so, you were born in China, but later moved to Germany and have also lived in Singapore before settling in Canada with your parents. Is that right? That is correct. So you you basically been living all around the world, and I guess that sort of、um, helped you with your journalism career as well by having multiple perspectives. Yeah, I guess I I spent my,、um, my my childhood moving around quite a lot, and I I only came to Canada when I was、uh, I think twenty years old. So I've been、uh, exposed to lots of different peoples,、uh, different nations, different cultures. When did you realize you actually wanted to become a journalist? I don't know. Like that, that's a very good question because I think、uh, after high school, when I was looking into university, and I was thinking of what. Programs I was going to go into. I think at the time I had three paths before me. I was either gonna go into journalism, or I was gonna do something related to the government, like be become a civil servant, or I would study law. So, and I think most of us who go into journalism, like we we all look at these three paths, and ultimately journalism won by just a hair. So it's it's definitely to me it felt at that time a better choice than the other two, but not that much of a better choice, you know. And but now, of course, I do feel that it's a better choice. But at the time,、uh, why did I choose journalism? It it didn't take a lot for for me to to tick that box. Hmm. Interesting. So did you go into journalism like ultimately because I don't know a lot of journalists like. Are idealists? Is that your reasoning as well, or was it something else? Were you just really curious as a child? Yeah, unfortunately, I I, I was, and I I think I still am an idealist. But also, it's definitely a mixture of many things. I think why we pursue things, it's never just one thing. So I I definitely thought that、uh, I wanted to make a difference through my writing. I wanted to change the world, 
And also, I, I just really love writing and I love reading as a child. And I think journalism, like something to do uh, with research, with the written word, uh, it, it felt very natural to me. Did you write stories um, or even try to do, try to pretend to be a journalist when you were a kid? I think I did try. And I, I think I'm, I'm very lucky that I, I was, uh, I, I, I grew up up in a, in a period where the, the internet isn't so prevalent. So uh, my earlier writing, uh, it did not survive. You, you can't see that. But yes, I, I think I did try to write lots of things when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And when did you realize you had a talent for writing? Oh, thank you for the kind words. Uh, I I don't know. I, I think uh, I... I, I realized that I this is something I seriously want to pursue uh, d- during J school. Like when I went to university, it further and f- like reinforced like my desire to pursue this this profession. But you know, with respect to whether like did I like did I even think that I am talented, that I am hot shit? Uh, <laughs> but I I I, I think no. I, I think. Uh, I'm always improving as I advance and I always find uh, new people to learn from and uh, new uh, new areas to improve upon. Mm-hmm. Well, you're quite modest. <laughs> so so you and I were um, actually schoolmates back in journalism school and that was, I think, uh, probably seven, eight years ago. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, after I graduated, you know, I kind of took the typical journalist career path and worked in newsrooms. Um, how did your career unfold after J school? Uh, well, I I took the quite typical path as well. They're, we're actually not that different. So uh, when we were in school, I, I was working at the Toronto Star at the time. And so I started, I think, uh, it, right after my second year. So I, I was at the Star for over two years uh, while I was in university. And then after university, I worked for the staff for a while as well. I continued there. And then I went on to Reuters. And I was at Reuters for two years. And then that's when I uh, sort of went off into the dark side. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I I left in part to write a book. And uh, so I was also into crypto. So the book, it's it's an examination of the space, once a Bitcoin miner, and but it's also sort of a personal take as well. And I I think I might be one of the few people in the world who accidentally wrote a second book and the few notes from a pandemic. So my two books, one of them was not planned. But so that happened, uh, I think, 2000, 2018 uh, up until now. And and uh, here we are. For you to come to that decision to actually quit a well-paying job to write your book, you must have known that uh, you had the goods <laughs> for the book to be, you know, a, a very good book. <laughs> uh, well, I, I think uh, I think may, may, maybe half of me felt I had the goods. Like I I I felt that thought to fifty percent. But also, uh, I said just now, it's a bit of a personal book as well. So. I had been uh, an investor in crypto since 2013. So back when we met, I had already invested in Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And so at the time that I quit, I, I did have, uh, and that was the year when Bitcoin went from like 
1,000 to 20,000. So I did have uh, this sort of uh, financial safety net. Ah, I see. So in terms of like the book and, you know, the characters and the stories inside, how did you how did you find those people? And were you already doing some, I guess, research before you quit at Reuters? Um, Like, did you come in contact with them beforehand? Um, Or did you, you know, go off into the woods, you know, to start from scratch when it comes to assembling the material for the book? Uh, Well, it's definitely a bit of both. And I had always wanted to write this book, actually. So I had always wanted to write a book and a, a book about Bitcoin specifically. I wanted to write it in like 2014. And mm. so yeah, I don't know if you know, uh, Kamal El-Soleli, uh, one of the profs in our program. He's like a very big shot author now. But back when he, when he taught me, uh, he was my first year prof and he hadn't written a book then. But I think... By the time uh, oh this happened, I think when 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 we were at the at the Ryersonian together in, our, in my fourth year, and um, he had already written a book. I went to him for advice, and I was seriously considering uh, trying to write the crypto book back then. Oh my gosh! But <laughs> yeah, that that was a stupid idea. Like you, I was, that was ambitious. Yeah, but I was very inexperienced at the time, and. <laughs> You know, for a non-fiction book, it's sold based on a proposal. So you have to come up with a proposal and you have to say, uh, it's basically like pitching a, a magazine article. You have to answer why you are the person to write that book. Uh, I could not answer that question. So it, it took a while, 2018, but mm-hmm. uh, I would say the book is, um, um, it, half of it was planned and the, the other half uh, kind of just... Uh, unfolded as I was writing. I see. So it grew out of your own experience dabbling into the cryptocurrency world from what I understand. Yes. And then it kind of grew from there when you went on and, you know, talked to other big people in the space, like uh, the co-founder of Ethereum. Yes. Uh, so there, there are many co-founders of Ethereum. So uh, this is a man called Anthony DiOrio. And I, I first interviewed him when I was, this was before we met, in 2013, I was working at this newspaper called the Telegraph Journal in St. John, New Brunswick. And this was when I first interviewed him. And back then there was no Ethereum. So, and I interviewed him throughout the years and I, I kind of watched him from, uh, at first he was, he created this uh, Bitcoin Alliance of Canada. And I think compared to who he is now, back then he was a relative nobody. And I think I watched him, uh, you know, uh, link up with Vitalik Buterin and watch him create Ethereum and uh, watch him become like one of the biggest figures in crypto right now. Mm-hmm. So you basically, you were already interested in that space and that's why you were sort of monitoring the players in there. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. And um, what was it about Bitcoin or cryptocurrency that made you interested in it? And why were you, like you said that you were an investor in 2013. What made you to take the first step yourself? Uh, well, so when I first heard of Bitcoin, uh, this was in either 2012 or 2013, might have been in between those years. And uh, my friends and I, I was in my second year of university at the time, and we were, we decided to go on the dark web one day. And that was when I first discovered Bitcoin. And because all those people on the dark web, uh, they have those marketplaces where you can buy like weapons and drugs 
theoretically at least. But there are a lot of scams there. You know, you 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 pay the money, but you you never get anything. So, but they they transacted with Bitcoin, and that was、uh, how I first got to know Bitcoin. And I thought at the time that I, I did look into this, like why they transacted with Bitcoin is because it's a decentralized currency that. That there's no central administrator governing it, so how it's transacted is purely user to user, and therefore, theoretically at least,、uh, the money can't be frozen, it can't be seized. And I thought this was a great technology, and I thought there's value in it, and perhaps value outside of the dark web. And but I didn't hold that thought to like a a high degree because. From when I first heard of Bitcoin to when I when I invested, I think that was that was a whole year. That was almost a whole year in between that.、Mm-hmm. Because then Bitcoin slowly went from this very、uh, you know esoteric thing to something that everybody was talking about at a certain point. I think it was around twenty seventeen because、uh, I think the price just flourished all of a sudden, and then everybody went in on it. Like was that also, I guess,、um, what made you return to that space just to see the growth, the exponential growth, I guess. Yeah, and Bitcoin, it,、uh, and so there are lots of other cryptocurrencies as well. But the entire cryptocurrency space, they they go up and down almost in sync with Bitcoin, and these are.、Uh, uh, Bull market cycles.、Uh, you mentioned two thousand seventeen. So, and we just saw another the bull market of twenty twenty one, and there was an earlier one as well. They, these cycles they come and go. And two thousand thirteen. So that's when I first heard about it. That was the year I think it went from like a hundred to like a thousand, or maybe like fifty bucks、wow. to a thousand. So, but that was the year it hit a thousand. So,、uh, yeah. yeah, these are、uh, price movements. They they come and go, but. With these price movements, you know, there there definitely is,、uh, like you said, quite a lot of mainstream attention.、Mm-hmm. So you compare the cryptocurrency space in your book to the Wild West. Can you explain that comparison? Yeah, and I I think that lots of other people make that comparison as well. I'm definitely not the first, but、uh, well, conclusions differ. Is that I don't think of the comparison as an insult. I think、uh, in many ways,、uh, why did people in the past seek out the Wild West? And in many ways, the Wild West—it's not that good. It's full of injustice and colonialism. But there is this idea of the Wild West that people had back then, and to many people, it represented a, a wide-open space that was that was welcoming, and anyone could go there, and there was land available for anyone. Because back in the day, North American governments—they were giving free land. And you know, some will say it's not their land to give, but they they were giving free land to people, who anyone who would go move west. So you you have wide open spaces, you get the land, and there was new riches and opportunity. And but more importantly, you are free from the societal hierarchies back home. So you go to the wild west, you shed your past identity, and you build a new life in a new society. And I think, in many ways,、uh, why people seek out crypto, this、uh, this represents all of that to them.、Mm-hmm, yeah. Is it okay if I ask you to read a paragraph from your book?、Uh, yeah, absolutely.、Uh, I I picked out a paragraph for some context. This is at the end of a a trip that I I ended up going to North Korea for the book. So 
this was at the end of it. By the time of that trip, it had been a year since Jan Serato had given away cryptocurrency at the meeting for Olium's Bitcoin Rodeo Conference in Calgary. I had become older, more haggard, but only wiser in terms of what I knew and could envision. It was overcast on the last day of the North Korean blockchain summit. As we drank 200 euro Chinese baijiu to mark the conclusion, readying ourselves to return to real life. The stars overhead were cloaked against the black Pyongyang sky, and nobody expected that something stirred in the West, a sleepless eye and peerless resources. Trouble brewed in more ways than we could imagine or foresee, and it would compound on what we had all already gone through in the cryptocurrency world over the past year. All right. So... You went to North Korea for the book. <laughs> oh no! So I I went to North Korea not for the book, and but I ended up including it in the book because something really extraordinary happened uh, as a result of the trip. Explain more. <laughs> so I did not expect the trip to North Korea to make the news. North Korea was holding a cryptocurrency conference. I decided to go and. Someone from that trip, who was a pretty high up person at the Ethereum Foundation, his name is Virgil Griffith. He ended up being arrested by the U.S. for going to that trip, and it was a pretty big case. And he recently pleaded guilty and to a PD of up to six and a half years in prison. I see. So he got into trouble because of what his investments. Oh, it's a very long story. So uh, basically, he he spoke at the conference and he was like uh, addressing like all the North Koreans there, and he and I was there. He he didn't really explain anything that was really very, anything that was secret or proprietary. It's Wikipedia information, Crypto One Hundred One. But to the US, he was uh, explaining crypto to the North Koreans. And as you know, North Korea faces lots of economic sanctions, and crypto is theoretically a way out of the sanctions. And so, to the U.S. government, he was explaining crypto to North Korea and、oh. trying to help them break sanctions. And it's, it's a big deal to the U.S. Yeah, I see. And then, what happened afterwards? I guess to him. Well,、um, after the trip. I think the the U.S. government wanted to speak to him, and I don't think he suspected much. And he quite willingly engaged with the U.S. authorities, and he didn't realize they were gonna charge him with something until it was too late. And so he got arrested on Thanksgiving of 2019, and his case took a long time to move through the courts. And 2021 fall, he pleaded guilty, and he'll be sentenced in April of 2022. Hmm. I guess for you, what was the point, or why did you include this bit into in your book? Uh, well, because it 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 made so much news. Uh, yeah. As as I was writing it, this happened almost toward the end of two thousand nineteen. So my deadline for the book was the end of two thousand nineteen, and I was writing, I was writing, and then I saw the news that Virgil Griffith got arrested, like because of the、yeah. trip that I was on, and I, I was there in <laughs> North Korea with him. There were only eight foreigners in North Korea, so we spent like a whole week in pretty close company, 
and it was it was very shocking and it was a uh, it was a big piece of news and I I thought I I had to include it. I see. Like just you being in North Korea itself is quite fascinating that I want to get into it a little bit more about but um, I don't know if we should do that given that um I have so many questions for you but um yeah so um in terms of like uh your book what's the time period from you said that your deadline was 2019 but were you capturing the space from 2013 when you first um invested uh, in bitcoin all the way to 2019 yeah but most of the action in the book it takes place um I think from 2017 to the end of 2019 And I guess after you know following、uh, the stories of the different characters in your book, what's the conclusion you've come to when it comes to cryptocurrency in general?、Uh, well, we oh we actually touched on this that、uh, crypto is is the wild west, and that's the I guess that's a bit of the thesis of the book. I I think many people they many crypto books they look at it from the perspective of monetary policy or. Or computer science, and but I I try to look at it from the the human condition perspective, what crypto stirs within us, and so this is a book on that, and、um, this whole wild west thing, this new world thing, that's the the thrust of、uh, what I hope to convey through the book.、Mm-hmm. So onto that、um, a little bit more. Tell me tell me about a few more characters in the book, and you know. I don't know if you've been following them after the you finished writing it, but how did their lives turn out? Like, how how are they doing now? There is a character that he's actually not mentioned in any、uh, publicity for the book. He's not on the cover because he's not famous,、uh, not that famous. But he is. He was one of my、uh, one of the most interesting characters to write, and I mentioned his name just now. His name is Jen Serato, and he comes from a bit of a a complicated past. And he, if you, I looked up his name in the courts. When you look up someone's name in the courts, you find out lots of information about them. He has a, a very long history in the courts. He has、uh, suspended criminal charges, and he has been sued by,、uh, lots of people. I mean, like oh, I think a dozen times at least. And the people suing him,、uh, they didn't always prevail because,、uh, in many cases. He he didn't turn up to court, and the people suing him they say they, this guy owes me money. They got a default judgment, but when they tried to collect the money,、uh, they they found themselves unable to do so. Or、uh, there were people trying to sue him. They when you sue someone, you have to serve a lawsuit, and there there have been cases where they the the, the process server says I I can't find him. But、uh, anyway, and he has publicly said that there were times that he had just fifty bucks in his wallet. There were times when he couldn't afford、uh, food, and I think in crypto he saw something. Two thousand seventeen, that was when he appeared in the Calgary crypto scene, and he started all sorts of projects. He started these、uh, meetups. He started holding events in crypto. He quickly became the the a center、uh, of the crypto scene, and he's a flashy, larger than life per-、uh, person, but. Very quickly, uh, everything uh, went to shit for him, and he started a, pro- a project that ultimately ended up before the Alberta Securities Commission. And it's a it's a very quick like rise and fall. And I think ultimately his story says a lot about the crypto world because 
as we talked about just now, it's a, it's, it's a wild west where I think the idealists, they want to seek adventure and uh, there are people who want to change the world, but it attracts all sorts of people. It attracts also people who want to bury their names and who want to be born anew because uh, in their old life, uh, they, they haven't had all that they had hoped for. And, mm-hmm. But ultimately, I think many of them would find that the Wild West is also harsh and unpredictable. Yeah, that's it's it's crazy. It's just like um like the lives of these characters just follows sort of the the market too, up and down, up and down, up and down, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Speaking of that, um, what's behind this massive gain that we're seeing right now, the bull market? Uh-huh. Uh huh. well, it's it's never just one thing, but uh, mm. these things they usually come in a lot of cycles, and uh, there there is a theory that that every four years there's a halving, so the the number of bitcoins being introduced into the system it it cuts in half every four years, and historically, every time Bitcoin rallies, it comes after those halvings because um, there's a limited quantity of bitcoins, and a lot of bitcoins they are actually they are they are lost when people lose their passwords. When uh, you know Satoshi Nakamoto, the the creator, he has a million bitcoins. And it's locked up in a wallet. They've never been moved. So there's a there's actually a million bitcoins that this just more or less disappeared. So, and there are lots of like old school bitcoiners. They just hold their bitcoin. So the number of bitcoins available on the market, if you want to buy some, uh, a lot of that I think it comes from the miners, those who uh, generate new units. And every four years that that gets cut in half. And I think that has an impact on the market. And it's also a chicken and egg thing, you know. When the price goes up, people pay attention. A lot of mainstream players uh, like uh, Elon Musk, uh, Jack Dorsey of Twitter, they, they all rush in. And when those big players rush in, the price rises even more. And then other big players see that and it's it, it reinforces. But it reinforces itself and it comes to a point where everyone gets tired of the hype and they look around. What are we doing here? And then it starts declining. And then I think it goes on a cycle again. I see. Yeah, because I think um, I was covering uh, cryptocurrency back in 2018, 19, when, we, when everybody was still talking about it. But in recent years, I haven't been paying too much attention to the space uh, like anymore. But it seems like the conversation has sort of died down by quite a lot. So it's surprising to me that uh, there's this massive resurgence again, just recently when I was looking up the, the price of Bitcoin, it just, yeah, seems fascinating. Um, so given that uh, the price is back up again, there's still going to be a lot of people who are interested in investing in this space. Do you have any advice for them? Uh, yeah, I, I would say uh, don't rush into it too much. If you think of it uh, as a, a tiered system, if you're investing in traditional securities and or traditional financial instruments, doesn't have to be securities, um, and then if you want to were to invest in like Bitcoin and Ethereum, which are the uh, and Ether, which are the established cryptocurrencies, uh, that will be one step above traditional investing. And one step above Bitcoin and Ethereum, you have the crazier coins like all the dog dog coins, Shiba Inu, Doge, and and there there's, there are also NFTs and everything, and so. It's probably okay to jump one level, but 
it's probably a bad idea to jump two levels in one shot. So if you don't already have Bitcoin, don't buy a coin with a dog on it. <laughs> but what about people who've never invested in Bitcoin at all? Uh, yeah, well, if you are already investing in traditional uh, financial instruments, I think it's okay to dip your toes into the established cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. Do you still hold on to any Bitcoins right now? Uh, yeah, I, I, I do hold quite a bit. And as you will see, my, my Twitter picture is an NFT. Oh, <laughs> own an NFT. Yeah, okay, yeah. I see. But um, like, what do they have to know? It just sounds like a completely new sort of um, financial, you know, uh, product for people who are not familiar with it or who don't know too much about it. Is there a danger into throwing your money into something like cryptocurrency? Uh, yeah, well, there, there's always a danger in investing. Back when I was at Reuters, I, I reported on this oil company and this oil company, Synovus, they made big news because back then the uh, American oil companies, they were leaving the Canadian oil patch and Synovus was buying up their, their, their assets they left behind unpopular acquisition and I saw its value tank I think more than 50% when I was there so if you're uh, an investor in Synovus back then you're, you're pretty out of luck so there is always an element of risk in all investments. Mm -hmm. So what made you you know um, feel okay to hold on to Bitcoin like are you how do you make your judgment when you when it comes to investing in cryptocurrency hmm. whether it's Dogecoin or you know uh, Bitcoin I think crypto is a big space and that one coin is not equal to another. And I, I would I, I would place a lot of distance between Bitcoin and Dogecoin. I would I would think of if you want to invest in Dogecoin and you know these things you call meme coins, it's quite akin to gambling at a casino. And I I I make no judgment on that, but I think you need to understand that uh, some are a lot riskier than others and I think uh, Bitcoin is one of those things that holds its value, and I think uh, the scarcity is is one of the things, and also the fact that there is uh, the creator is anonymous and it's completely decentralized. So there is no CEO of Bitcoin. the The government can't uh, government can't seize or ban Bitcoin, and I mm -hmm. think that there is an inherent uh, Nassim Nicholas Talib, uh, the the author of the Black Swan, he came up with the term anti fragile. And there is an inherent anti-fragileness to Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Okay. And just uh, another question, one more question on this uh, topic. Did you also move to Alberta yourself um, so that you could, uh, you know, have like a computer farm to mine Bitcoin while you were writing your book? <laughs> no, no, I, I was already in Alberta at the time. Oh, okay. You were already in Alberta at the time. So yeah. you're just doing that as a side thing while you're writing your book. Uh, it was actually kind of a vehicle for writing the book because earlier oh. we talked about in 2014, I wanted to write the book. I could not answer the question of why I was the person to write it, but uh -huh. thought by starting this mining company, I, I could answer that question. <laughs> I see. Okay. Great initiative. All right. Let's move on to your uh, next book, Field Notes from the Pandemic, since we're still in the midst of the pandemic um, as we speak. So you were visiting your grandfather in Beijing in January 2020 when WHO uh, alerted the whole world to the COVID-19 pandemic. Tell me about uh, that trip. Like you were originally planning to visit your grandfather. What happened um, afterwards? Were you stuck in Beijing? 
So it was actually a a little outside Beijing. So it wasn't okay. actually Beijing proper, but I guess in the area. And the day I left, it was it was a day before the first city was locked down. It was a day before Wuhan was sealed off. So that was a, that was a bit of a surreal day because I I, I view the the lockdown of Wuhan as the as the start of the pandemic. So the pandemic for me it began while I was in the air without internet. So I had no idea what's going on. But when I uh, when I arrived in Beijing, I, I I found out that that the entire city was locked down. And back then, I know China did this many times, and other countries have done that. But back then, that was very unprecedented. And yeah, it was basically surreal. I I actually did manage to to see my grand grandfather and grandmother and. Despite all that I'd gone through, I actually feel very fortunate that I went to China when I did because I, uh, if I went just like a day or two afterward, that was when the seniors' residence they were in they banned all visitors, mm-hmm. and and my, my my grandfather died uh, toward the end of that year, not from COVID. He he was already dying, so I I'm glad I was able to see him one last time as well. Mm-hmm. So it was completely unplanned. It wasn't like you were planning to chase after this pandemic to write a book. No, I I I would never do that. And I, <laughs> I don't know, Ethan. I mean, you're pretty hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> you think too much of me. Originally, when you were um, planning out this trip to visit your grandfather, you had a few other stops、um, planned as well after that trip to sort of take like a break after you finished your cryptocurrency book, right? Yeah. Did you end up visiting those countries? Not all of them. Actually, not even most of them.、Uh, I. I, I cut a lot of stops from my trip because of the pandemic, but、uh, at the same time,、uh, I felt I was just one step ahead of it. So, as you know, the pandemic is spread from China, and wh- when I left China, when I left China and arrived in Singapore,、uh, the the Singapore government was actually telling its people not to wear masks, and I don't think anyone expected. And I know in retrospect, everything is clear, but at the time. Nobody expected the pandemic to uh, uh, be as serious as it is, as it is now, and lots of countries in Asia they, they've dealt with SARS, and they thought at the very worst this will be like SARS. And so I was in Sing- life was normal when I was in Singapore, but and then I I only had two stops after China, so Singapore and Germany. And when I left Singapore for Germany.、Uh, Things were still fine, and things were very fine in Europe as well. But then, when I was in Europe, I, I heard that Singapore got locked down, and、oh. then、uh, after a while, when I was in Europe,、uh, when I was in Germany,、uh, in the middle of that,、uh, Germany started locking down, and it, like they, they started having the pandemic. Yeah, so you were kind of stuck in Germany. Yeah, my 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 flight back to Canada, I, it got、uh, it got delayed twice. And、uh, which which is quite a frustrating experience.、Mm-hmm. So, how long were you in Germany for compared to your original plan? I think original plan maybe was only like a week or two, but I ended up staying like a whole month. Oh, I see.、Yeah. I see. And were you sort of just gathering the stories and what was happening around you as this was happening? Yeah,、uh, a a little bit because I, I I kind of had nothing else to do. Yeah, because like I guess all the all the all the trips were canceled, like all、yeah. the tourist trips, like you know you couldn't visit anywhere. Yeah. So a funny thing, I, I was supposed to see a friend in Germany, 
And but that friend, uh, he was in Canada at the time, and so he was supposed to come back to Germany to meet me there. But because of the pandemic, he he couldn't go back to Swapped. Germany. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and <laughs> and so I I ended up staying in this in this empty apartment. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah was it a nice apartment? <laughs> <laughs> it, it it was okay. He he lives like a. He lives like how you would imagine a bachelor to live. So he had, uh, he had only two plates in his house. Oh and man! One plate was used to hold some space cakes, and so there's only one other plate available. So did you end up getting some? I guess I don't know, like plates for him while you were staying there. No, I I, I guess that the two of us are very similar. So I, I I made do with his one plate. I see. Wow, for the whole one month, crazy. Yes. So. You went from you know China to to Singapore, then to Germany. Did you notice any differences in how uh, those countries, I guess, responded to COVID? Uh, yeah, I, I think I actually noticed more similarities than differences. That at first, everyone was assuming that it would not hit them. Uh, the and this isn't something I personally experienced, but I did read that when I was going to Germany at the time, the, the French president and his wife, you know, they uh, they they went to the theater, and Germany was still holding soccer matches with tens of thousands of fans, and yeah, everything was open in Singapore, and I, I I didn't expect this as well, and I think sorry, when was this? Yeah, I think it was in February, twenty twenty. I think in Canada it was like. Everything uh, got shut down starting March. Yeah. So that was one month before. Yeah, the lockdowns, like, they came very suddenly. Like, before the lockdowns happened, there was the general sentiment, I think, was that they, it, they cannot possibly happen. And I, I think there was this sentiment everywhere. They're, they're pretty normalized now. Like, when, uh, when the Ontario government announced a lockdown, I think, just a couple of weeks ago, Nobody really batted an eye. Yeah. yeah, and it's surprising. I guess nobody expected to last this long. I think, um, I think at the onset, people were hoping that this pandemic would just end after a year or so. But look where we are now, twenty twenty two, and it's still, you know, masks, lockdowns. So you've done some research into the history of pandemics. What have you found about? Um, you know, how this one differs from the previous pandemics in history and why we were so um, taken back by this one? Uh, well, I, I think I, I would also say that I see more similarities and differences. Um, mm -hmm. I think uh, our, our world is kind of defined by plagues. And if you look at the, what has happened in the past, uh, when the Black Death came, the many modern institutions and how we deal with the plague and how we review contamination and isolation a lot of it all of that came from there and how modern societies developed uh, modern sanitary systems and and how we have uh, nice little parks in the middle of cities and building codes a lot of that came from the cholera outbreak of the, the 19th century so a lot of the past plagues they ended up uh, building and defining our world and Maybe this one will will do the same. Mm -hmm. So lockdowns were, I guess, normal back then too, when they were dealing with plagues and. Oh yeah, like you, you all can, those things. If you read historical texts, like during the the plague of Justinian, 
which mm-hmm. was the I think it might have been like in the in the eighth century. I I I might be wrong on this, but the uh, the Byzantine emperor back then they uh, yeah they they shut down their marketplaces. They uh, they forced shops to close. It's pretty much the same thing. What about civil liberty back then? Yeah, I guess back then uh, they, they didn't really have a concept of civil liberties. They probably did the same things, but maybe uh, I guess people didn't have an, uh, the, a precise idea of, uh, I guess, well, whether that's, that's good or bad and how, how, it, how it affects them in that way. How have you been holding up during this pandemic, by the way? <laughs> I think uh, considering everything, I, I, I held up rather well. I'm, uh, I'm generally uh, a glass half... I'm a, I'm a glass half full person, and I, I think that uh, every day I'm alive, it's a blessing. And yeah, I, 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 I think if if I actually caught the plague and if I were to die tomorrow, uh, I, I I think I, I I'd be okay. I think I I lived a full <laughs> life, and I, I, I I'm generally quite zen about all of this. So I see. I, yeah. And what do you think will be some of the lasting impacts of this pandemic? I think it's really uh, exacerbated divisions in society. If you see uh, what went on just a couple of days ago, the uh, the trucker convoy into Ottawa, the government's enforcing a vaccine mandates for truckers, and a lot of them are unhappy in the convoy. But if you actually look at what they're saying, it's not really sp- a lot of what they want. It's not specific to the vaccine mandate. It's about it's about all sorts of things, all sorts of grievances, and. Because uh, I think society has sharply diverged over what the government has, governments all over the world have been enforcing. And it's an issue of uh, the welfare of the collective over individual rights. And I think never before have we been so polarized over the issue. And I, I'm not sure what can heal that divide. Yeah, with with all these um, issues, like you said, um, that have been brought to surface because of the pandemic, why do you think governments around the world are so unprepared to deal with it? Uh, I, I think that's also a philosophical question, because if they were prepared to deal with it, we would have had no pandemic. We, we wouldn't have known. Yes, we, we wouldn't have even known that they were prepared. So, and I think all this time, perhaps... The, all our governments, they were very well prepared against like a thousand other different threats and they, they watered them off. We didn't know. And the very definition of a, of a pandemic, of a crisis is the fact that we are unprepared and we have, uh, we have only like a, a limited amount of energy. If we, if we put it into preventing this one thing, uh, we wouldn't have prevented other things. And a classic example uh, the U.S. government did not have enough uh, ventilators. Sorry, not not ventilators. Uh, test kits in the beginning because they were they were they actually were preparing for pandemics, but they were preparing for a totally different pandemic, like something related to the swine flu. And so they had different. They stocked up, but on different test kits. And so when when this hit, uh, they were unprepared. And I think we will always have crises coming uh, for which we are unprepared. Did anybody predict this ahead of time? I, I think lots of people predicted this, but I think, but we live in a uh, a big and complex world, and we have all sorts of experts predicting all sorts of things. Like uh, before nine eleven happened, 
they uh, the U.S. government received like so much intelligence that this was uh, this attack was going to happen, but they received all of that intelligence every single day. Like uh, before uh, the president JFK was assassinated, they uh, yeah the Dallas police they they received like so many different threats and. I think we live in an, uh, a world of uh, information overload. Uh, yeah. The issue is not hearing about it, but what, how do you sift through all like the multitudes of threats that you hear about? Interesting. All right. Based on everything you've read, how do you think uh, this this part of our history will end? Uh, well, I will. Uh, I, I will quote you, uh, Watchman. So there was a guy who uh, asked, I think, uh, one of the characters. Uh, in the end, did I do the right thing? And the other character said to him, well, what, uh, there is no such thing as an end. So perhaps uh, we will not. <laughs> and there, oh, may, Maybe there will be no tomorrow, just an everlasting today. Oh, that's... Oh, that's really tough to kind of uh, face. <laughs> yeah. I know, it's, it's pretty dark. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've been living like this for, I don't know, almost two years, I guess. Yeah, almost two years. Has it been two years? Yeah. Two years, yeah. And just to see this being the new normal forever and ever, it's kind of hard to imagine. I mean, I don't socialize much anymore, except maybe through Zoom, like on a call with you right now. But it would be so much better, wouldn't you think, to be able to, you know, see somebody face to face and have a f- in-person conversation? <laughs> yeah, but if you but yes. if you look at how the world is dealing with it, if you look at what what's happening in China, uh, mm. you know they're pursuing this whole like zero COVID strategy, and my uh, my the grandparents on my mother's side, really old people. I think by my grandfather's close to ninety years old. They've been PCR tests like eight or nine times. Just that stick uh, like up that nose. Like two two really old people subjecting them to that. Uh, wow. Yeah, so many times. And uh, um, oh. and as you know, China is like really heavily locked down. And yeah, uh, I really don't see that changing uh, anytime soon, especially if that they continue on this zero COVID strategy. Oh, Jesus. This is like complete erosion of civil liberty. <laughs> I, I know. Yeah. So when did you get back to Canada? Uh, that was in May. So May of 2020. May of 2020. So you've been back for quite a while now. Yeah. Okay. So what have you been working on these days? <laughs> um, so the, the Bitcoin book was supposed to come out in 2020, but the pandemic book came out in 2020 instead. So Bitcoin book just came out 2021. And throughout the whole 2021, I was dealing with the, the book publicity. So there's uh, a lot to do uh, when a book comes out. Um, so that's more or less wrapping up. And uh, these days I, I write a regular column in the Financial Post and I just started a new column in the Globe and Mail. And have a couple of long-form uh, magazine stuff I'm working on. And there's also... Virgil Griffith sentencing, and I'm gonna be there in uh, in April. Oh, where where is he uh, getting sentenced? The U.S. Uh, right? Yeah, in uh, in New York, and uh, up to six and a half years. That's that's the plea deal he signed. Right. So you're still continue to cover the cover the cryptocurrency space. Yeah. It's not finished yet for you. <laughs> uh, it, it's not finished, but uh, also I I like to say that just because uh, Christopher Nolan made three batman films doesn't make him a superhero movie director so i'm, I'm doing quite a lot of uh, non-crypto stuff as well 
I see. And what are those? Uh, well, I've, uh, if you look at the the work I've done through the the past year while I was juggling the book, I, I wrote uh, quite a few magazine pieces. Uh, among them was a piece on the... Uh, you probably heard of this uh, Sanjay Madan, the the Ontario civil servant who was uh, was admitted to stealing, uh, I think, millions in pandemic relief funds. And so I guess uh, a mixture of, uh, I guess, columns and long-form work. Okay. All right, then. Thank you, Ethan, <laughs> for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Ethan Lowe is a journalist and the author of two new books out during the pandemic, Once a Bitcoin Miner and Field Notes from a Pandemic. You can check out his books and reporting at ethanlow.com. That's Lowe spelled L-O-U. Also, don't forget to subscribe to my podcast and head over to cc-wang.com. That's S-I-S-S-I-W-A-N-G.com for more interviews like this one, plus read about the guests you just heard and see pictures from the interviews. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the show. Until next time.